0: Today is Sunday, April 10th. It's Palm Sunday this year. And this is William Michael of the Classical Liberal Arts Academy. And today, I'd like to share some thoughts on a topic that I've been discussing recently with my wife that I think will be helpful. When I was in college, and I was facing all of the all of the stresses and challenges and confusion of of trying to discern uh, how to live, what paths to pursue, and so on. I was encouraged by a mentor of mine to focus on. A couple passages of sacred scripture and through the years I've always passed these same passages on to my students the first was from Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 where we read do not lean upon your own understanding but trust in the Lord In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Do not lean on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your path. That was Proverbs chapter 3. Verses five and six. The other passage was Matthew chapter six, verse thirty three, where Jesus teaches seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be. All these things that others are concerned about, or even that that I am concerned about, will be added unto me. At that point in my life, when I was really running in the dark, those two passages of Scripture anchored my life, and by the grace of God, I followed that advice. I did not lean on my own understanding, but I trusted in the Lord, and I acknowledged Him in my ways, and almost 30 years later, I can say He has very happily directed my path. And as for our Lord's words, when I had decisions to make in college about what to study, what I was going to do for a living, all these questions that that people around me asked me to give answers for. How would I make a living? What was I going to do? All these things. I committed to seeking first the Kingdom of God and His righteousness, that is, just being a faithful, obedient Christian. And again, almost 30 years later, I can say that everything necessary for my life and happiness has been added to me. I can testify personally that both of these passages of Scripture are trustworthy. And now in my work in education over the past 20, almost 25 years I have to interact with students and parents and my teaching usually involves older students, young adults, making the biggest decisions in their lives along with the parents who are trying to direct them and help them make those decisions. And the most common problem that I see is that this advice, which was given to me when I was 18, 19 years old, is not followed by Christian parents and Christian students. And this is what I'd like to talk about, I'd like to talk about the practical outworking of these things in quote-unquote real life. When we use this phrase, real life, what people usually mean by that are the real material concerns of human life. How are you going to make a living? How are you going to provide for your family? What are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? Where are you going to live? How are you going to take care of your health? How are you going to retire? All of these practical concerns. The burden of these practical concerns is what many people call real life. And this idea of real life hinders many people from doing what they should actually do in their life. Our Lord directly addressed these kinds of cares and questions and anxieties when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He knew that these kinds of cares and thoughts and worries hold men back from following him. He knew that and he addressed them directly. He said take no thought for your life. He literally said take no thought for your life. And in saying this we find that Christ directly contradicts the advice and the questions and cares of those who pretend to be concerned about our quote-unquote real life. He told us, as I quoted before, not to think about these things, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he promised us that if we did so, all of these concerns that are raised by those around us and by our own thoughts would be provided for us. He directly addressed those questions. He, he directly addressed this notion of real life. And he essentially told us that the way that people think about this real life is not how life really works. Life doesn't work the way that men imagine that it does. God controls all things by his providence. He blesses those who fear. And obey him, and he punishes those who disobey him, who do not fear him. That's how real life really works. And the reason why men don't acknowledge this is because they simply don't want it to be true. Whenever we talk about following God, whenever we talk about Being a Christian, whenever we talk about living this Christian life and and doing God's will, what men what men are offended by, what men are disgusted by, is the fact that the true and living God, the creator of the world, is holy. And he offers salvation to those who desire to be holy. And he threatens with punishment those who do not want to be holy. He offers rewards to the virtuous. And he threatens punishments to those who practice vice. He promises to do to us what we do to our neighbor, whether that's good or evil. And it's this moral challenge that we're presented with by a God who is not like the gods in the ancient poems, gods who are troubled by the same faults as men, but the true and living God is perfect not only in power, not only in wisdom, but in goodness, in justice. True and living God is a holy God who loves justice. And it's this moral obligation that comes with worshiping and following the true and living God that causes so many to be averse to true religion. What most men think about religion is that religion is good. Most people, not all, but most people will admit that they believe that religion is good, and. If all things were right, they themselves would be religious. I had a, a Greek professor in college who I used to meet with in the evenings alone to just spend time reading Greek together. And he was a New Testament scholar at a university, a secular university. And he had studied studied world religion for years and years. He was an expert in ancient Greek. And as we were reading the New Testament together, and again, our focus was just on reading and interpreting the language, he stopped at one point and asked me what my plans were. And I told him that I wanted, to, I wanted to work to promote Christianity. I wanted to be a, a teacher of the scriptures. And that's why I was interested in Greek. And he started a, a conversation with me about his own religious experiences and background. And he told me that he admired... He admired the apostles, he admired the early Christians, especially as we read about them in the book of Acts. And he asked me, where are these Christians today? And that was apparently a stumbling block for him that while he might read about the early church and the apostles and admire that early Christian community, when he looked around at the modern world he didn't see Christians like that today and I think I would agree with him that if you walk into a local church you're not going to see what we read about in the book of Acts before your eyes in most places and he went on to tell me that he had studied other religions especially Buddhism, which he was attracted to. And yet he was drawn to Christianity, that early Christianity, that apostolic Christianity. And he said that if there was a a button that he could push, that would make him believe that he would push that button, that he wanted to push that button, but he just didn't have it in him to believe. And what I realized as we talked about things, and by the way, my response to him when he talked about the uh, the early Christians, all that I could tell him was that it was my desire to be one of those Christians. But what I realized as we had that discussion was He was saying that he was willing to be a Christian if the conditions were all comfortable. If that Christianity, that Christian life, was made convenient for him, then in those conditions he would be a Christian. And I think as he said that, that he answered his own question because the early Christians didn't wait for the conditions to be right before they became Christians. The early Christians became Christians under the most adverse circumstances imaginable. And those nice passages about the communal life of the early Christians and the faithfulness of the apostles took place in the context of persecution. There were no preconditions established before those early Christians chose to follow Christ. And I would argue that His desire for the conditions to be in place first so that he could then be like one of those Christians is exactly what's wrong with modern Christianity and why we don't see Christians like those in the New Testament around us today. When Christ preached to the crowds that came to listen to Him and learn from Him, when He taught His disciples privately, when He spoke to individuals that He invited to follow Him, He was always honest with them about the conditions. He always told them right up front that they would have to sacrifice everything and that they would be persecuted for following him. He never pretended that there would be health and wealth for everyone who entered his church. He warned of the persecutions that would come because those who would follow him and would live according to God's commandments Who would live heavenly lives on earth. They would be hated by their neighbors, not only by their neighbors, but Christ said even by the members of their own households. Christ challenged his hearers to follow him regardless of the conditions. And it's in that context that his teaching was presented. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you or added unto thee. And as I said, as I've worked in Christian education for the past 20 plus years, The problem that I find in Christian education is that we don't listen to what Christ said. We don't listen to what Solomon taught in the Proverbs. And we seek this conditional Christianity. We seek to prepare a comfortable life first to make sure that we're safe in this world first and promise that if and when we get all of our things in order and we establish a safe and comfortable life, then we'll follow Christ, then we'll study philosophy and theology, then we'll give our attention to Christian works, maybe even engage in some Christian ministries. First, we're going to take care of real life, and then, once real life is taken care of, and we can follow God in the conditions that we choose, then we'll seek the kingdom of God. Then we'll seek God's righteousness. And what happens in life is that that time never comes. That time never comes. The windows of opportunity to study, to pray, to begin good works, and so on, the time for those things, the window of opportunity for those things closes as we're seeking to establish our physical lives, our financial lives. And it's important to say that Christ taught the opposite. He didn't simply tell us at some point when we're ready, when the circumstances are favorable, that we should seek the kingdom of God. At some point. That's not what he said. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the life that is that God commands living according to his commandments according to the law establish that life now start that life now commit to that life now and all these things will be added by God, as He judges best, and so the order of the Christian life is the opposite of what most people think it should be. Like I said, most people think you should get your life, your real life, in order first and then help the church or contribute to the church or participate in some christian ministry but that's not what christ taught and all of these all of these part-time volunteer ministries as they're called can only do so much the essential work of the christian life becomes neglected And this is what we see in our society. We see that there are virtually no religious vocations. And I'm not just talking to the priesthood. We may be able to find enough priests here and there to celebrate masses and hear confessions, to baptize and to visit the sick and so on, but there's much more to Christian culture and the Christian life and the overall work of the Christian Church, than the priesthood alone. There's also the life and work of religious monks and nuns who devote their entire lives to contemplation and prayer. We find almost no interest in the contemplative life among modern Christians. In my work in teaching, I almost always find that parents are concerned about career preparation, college preparation, and the Christian life is given a nod and acknowledged verbally to be important, but not right now. First things first. First we have to take care of real life and then we can talk about those other things. I've talked to teenage boys who are already talking about how they want to get married and how they want to go to college, how they already have careers in mind And yet they haven't studied philosophy, they haven't studied theology, they haven't studied sacred scripture. And yet when they talk about being doctors or lawyers or engineers or computer programmers, it's always presented with this promise of using that career for God's glory somehow, somehow. But that somehow is never really explained. How exactly does a person who hasn't studied Catholic philosophy, hasn't studied Catholic theology, doesn't know the content of divine revelation, how is that person really going to use that secular career? To glorify God it sounds nice and it shows some air of religious sentiment but it's not the life that Christ taught us it's not how life works it's not how real real life works And this idea of real real life is interesting in itself. In the ancient world, while we talk about Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, the most influential philosopher in the ancient world was Pythagoras. And many modern students are familiar with Pythagoras because they learn the Pythagorean theorem in geometry class, even in a public school. But that really has nothing to do with Pythagoras as a philosopher. Pythagoras believed that the way to wisdom went through mathematics. And again, not modern math classes. That has nothing to do with the mathematics that Pythagoras was interested in. Pythagoras believed that wisdom, or the path to wisdom, went through mathematics, classical mathematics. And there was a reason for this. Pythagoras taught that material things, the things that we see and hear, smell, touch, and taste, these material things are not reality. They can't be reality. They're constantly changing. They're born and they die and they decompose. They're constantly changing. All material things are constantly changing. There's no stability in material things. There's no permanence no security no certainty and they can't be known we can't study all of the individual material things around us and in conclusion to these reflections pythagoras taught that the material world is not reality nor were we created to focus on the material world We are reasoning creatures, distinct from all other creatures. Cows and goats and sheep are part of this material world. They're born, they live by instinct, they die and decompose, and that's their end. But human beings were not born for such an end, nor for such a purpose. They were born for eternity. They were born incarnate, but essentially as living souls, as souls with bodies. The body merely being the instrument through which the soul carries out its will. Man is essentially, essentially a soul, or is essentially identified in his soul. We even define man in Catholic circles as a a creature composed of body and soul, made to the image and likeness of God, and we go on to say that this likeness between man and God consists in the soul, and that the soul is more important than the body. That's taught explicitly in Catholic teaching. And yet when we look at our lives, we find that this is almost never practiced, because we're busy dealing with quote-unquote real life, that is, our temporal material life. Pythagoras taught that reality is not found in material things, but that reality is found in eternal things, things which are immaterial, which do not change, which do not decompose, which do not grow and die, things that are stable and permanent, unchanging, These things are the things, he says, that man was created to fix his mind upon. These are the things that man was designed for. The mind of man was designed, unlike the mind of any other creature, to be fixed upon a world that is not understood by the senses, but by this unique power given by God to men alone. And that it's by focusing on this immaterial world that man finds the true end of his life, true happiness and peace of mind. He is able to rest only when he fixes his mind on those things that are eternal and unchanging. This is not a saint. This was not a doctor of the church. This was not an Old Testament prophet. This is the philosopher Pythagoras, who, as I said, was the most influential of all ancient philosophers because he established the way to wisdom through classical mathematics, which was the way that was followed by the other philosophers, philosophers like Plato. And, of course, Aristotle, being a disciple of Plato, continued in this tradition that traced itself back to Pythagoras and back to ancient Egypt and Babylon and according to Christian tradition to Abraham. So Pythagoras would argue that real life was the life that Jesus was teaching about. Real life is the life that Plato and Aristotle and Socrates were focused on for which they lived. Real life was not the life of food and drink, clothing and housing. That's not real human life. Real life is not about money and retirement or health care. That's not real human life. Real human life, reality, for a human being is seeking happiness that's worth or that's worthy of a human being who is created and designed to live forever, an everlasting happiness. And the soul of man is given such great power, such great virtue, that that the soul is able to overcome all of the difficulties of the body that men fear. All of the evils of this life have been overcome by men of great souls. And the word for men of great souls is magnanimous, literally means great soul. Magnanimous men have always overcome the greatest physical hardships. If we look back to the story of Job in the Old Testament, which was the first book of the Bible that I ever read, Job was afflicted with incomprehensible evils, the death of his children, the destruction of his house, the loss of all of his wealth, even the loss of his physical health, and the persecution of his wife and friends. He sat alone in complete physical, temporal, circumstantial misery. And yet, being a magnanimous man, Job said, Even though God should slay me, yet will I trust him. Giving us a living example of what Proverbs chapter 3 is talking about. Even though he slay me, even if things get worse, I'll still trust him. Job's life was ruled by his soul. And not by cares about the conditions of his body. He sought first the kingdom of God and all the other things were added unto him and for a time taken away from him. And when they were taken away and he had to deal with the nagging of his wife, he said to her, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away." And in the end of his life, Job's fortunes were restored to him. And we refer to the character of Job by his virtue of patience. We talk about the patience of Job. But what made Job unique was that he was fixed upon Reality That is, the world immaterial, the world that doesn't change. And we see the steadfastness of that life without any regard for the circumstances in which it finds itself. The soul of man is not dependent on good circumstances for happiness. Throughout the entire history of human life, we've seen magnanimous men overcome the greatest suffering, the greatest torture, the greatest obstacles and difficulties. We see Moses lead the Hebrews out of Egypt by faith we see David kill Goliath and free the people of Israel from all of their much stronger enemies by faith, not leaning upon his own understanding, but trusting in the Lord, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and trusting that if he does so, all of these human concerns will be provided for in God's time according to God's own judgment. And that's how the Christian life has always been lived by wise men and saints. They've always fixed their minds, focused their lives on the eternal things, on the unchanging things, on the really real things, and they've allowed circumstances to work themselves out in God's providence. And when their souls were fixed on those eternal things, they became indifferent as to the circumstances. St. Paul said, I have learned whether He said, I I have learned to be content whether I am rich or whether I have nothing. He said to be content with food and clothing, to not pay attention to changing circumstances. They're They're not important. The life that we have to live, the work that we have to do isn't dependent on comfortable, lush." healthy, pain-free circumstances. We don't need popular approval. We don't need great sums of money. We don't need perfect health. We don't need freedom from all pain. St. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And that strength he talks about is the grace that God promises to us not to avoid evil not to av- I mean not to avoid evils in this life not to avoid adverse circumstances but to overcome them when we play sports we don't we don't hope that we can avoid facing other competition We don't hope that there's no other good teams or no other good players. That's not what we work for and seek in sports. In sports, we seek to beat our opponent. We seek to overcome the strength of our competitors. And we celebrate the most after we defeat the strongest opponent and we give the greatest honors to those who defeat the strongest opponents. And yet, when we look at the Christian life, we find Christians often seeking the opposite kind of life. Seeking to be free from difficulties, to face no adversity, to have no enemies, and so on. Choosing to avoid adversity whenever it appears. Promising that after they have taken care of their physical, material life, then they'll take up this fight against evil. And because temporal circumstances are constantly changing, that steadfast, peaceful time of life never comes. Never comes. And they use, they use their circumstances for the rest of their lives as an excuse to never seek the kingdom of God, to never seek God's righteousness because they say they have to work to add all of these things before they can do so. And this, of course, is the exact opposite of what Christ teaches us. They look at material possessions as something that men go and get, as if men have the power to make themselves wealthy and healthy and comfortable. They would never admit that they think that that's true. If you ask them, do you believe it's in your power to make yourself wealthy and healthy and comfortable and safe? They would all say, oh, of course not. Only God can make us. And yet, as soon as those words come out of their mouth, their feet are moving in a different direction. Because regardless of what they say, their lives say something different. Their lives say that they do in fact believe that men can make themselves wealthy and healthy, safe and comfortable, even through old age. They say one thing because they know what they should say. Everyone knows what they should say, but doing it actually living that life they don't trust they don't trust that if they would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness that everything else would be provided for them as I said when I was in college I was poor but I was smart And I had lots of options open in front of me. I was pressured by many to study and pursue a career in medicine. And I started my college studies as a pre-med student with this thought of becoming a doctor. And as a Christian, I thought, well, I would like to be a Christian doctor. I could do all kinds of good as a Christian doctor. I could help people. I could help relieve pain, I could help. But in the back of my mind, I knew that I didn't need to become a licensed physician to help people. I didn't need to become a doctor of medicine with a medical school degree to care for the sick. As far as I know, Mother Teresa wasn't a licensed physician. Mother Teresa didn't have a doctoral degree in medicine and yet I'd argue that Mother Teresa probably cared for more sick people than any licensed physician. Saint Francis didn't have a physician's license or a a degree in medicine and he took care of the poor because Caring for the poor and the sick is a work of mercy. And applying medicines and performing surgeries isn't necessarily what it means to care for the sick. Nor are these methods of caring for the sick as effective as those who focus on them, pretend they are. At the very best, all it can do is delay what's coming or change the source of suffering. But it doesn't address the real issue, which is suffering and death. It doesn't address the presence of sickness and disease. It may address symptoms or signs of these evils, but it doesn't accomplish what those who praise it suggest it does. The same is true with caring for the poor. We may say that, well, if I become wealthy and successful in business, then I can care for the poor. But if anyone actually does care for the poor, They know that the poor aren't necessarily in need of cash. And so this becomes a false, a false idea. Why would a poor man need cash to go and buy products and services from other men? What the poor need we're told, food, we're told to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. Who doesn't have food and clothing that he can share? And the whole point of almsgiving, the whole point of fasting, I shouldn't say the whole point of fasting, but part of the point of fasting is to deny ourselves the extras that we could take for ourselves by greed or by gluttony and to think of the actual needs of the poor and to share so that all have what they need rather than some have abundance. The poor don't need million-dollar checks from one person Christ didn't practice any such care for the poor. St. Francis didn't practice any such care for the poor. And yet this pursuit of wealth is often justified by saying it's, it's for the poor. Poor have no need of such donations. They need mercy care of the poor is a work of mercy. And by the time someone does become wealthy and turn around and make this promised donation, we find that it's entangled with all kinds of personal benefits like tax exemption, publicity, and so on. Is it ever actually the work of mercy that Christ commands, or is it always something else? We don't need to be licensed physicians or registered nurses. We don't need to be CEOs. We don't need to already have our retirement plans prepared and filled for our own retirement. We don't need to reach these these great heights of earthly professional achievement or wealth to do the things that Christ commanded us. And we deceive ourselves by pretending that we seek these things for God's sake. When God never asks us to do any such thing, Christ asked his followers To do the opposite when the rich young ruler came to christ he told him to go sell all of his possessions and give them to the poor and come follow him he didn't say oh good you're a rich man great we could use some rich men around here would you mind writing checks for all of our needs and supporting all of our activities we could really use A steady stream of income he told the man to go and unload all of his wealth all of his possessions distribute all that wealth all of that abundance among the poor from whom it was taken and then in simplicity of life come and follow Christ, because the Christian life doesn't need what that rich man had. And when he had relieved himself of it, Christ said he could come and follow him, and the rich man didn't come. He went away sad, it says, and it's true that that life telling yourself that your pursuit of material things, your heart filled with anxieties and worries and cares, is somehow for God's glory, is a sad life. Our souls were not made for such a life. Our souls were made for heroic faithful, eternal life. We were made to do great things. We were made to overcome impossible obstacles. And when we look back to the early Christians and admire them, what we admire about them was not that there were doctors and lawyers and engineers and bankers and all these different professions among them and that they were all so responsible and so successful. We admire them that they lived heroically and simply, that they often overcame the most powerful and wealthy enemies in weakness and poverty, by trusting in God and believing that God would bring about the ends that He desired through their simple obedience And this was, in fact, what impressed the Romans and led so many to conversion. It was the simplicity and the courage of the Christians that shocked the world. It was the courage and the power of the Christians that led Constantine to conversion. He saw them persecuted by the previous emperor, he saw them overcome and outlive that Emperor and he knew that there was a power in the Christian people that the Roman Empire couldn't deal with. And he chose, as the popular saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them. And the simple, poor, afflicted, Christians of the first three centuries overtook the power of the Roman Empire. And yet, despite the fact that we all know that, we imagine that we first have to build a Roman Empire so that we can live the Christian life. The reason I talk about this is because in education, this is what plagues Christian education today. Parents and students will not study the subjects that the wise men and Saints tell them to study. Christians do not study the subjects that the Saints themselves studied. Their schools are designed to prepare men for some false hope of material sufficiency, comfort, prosperity, stability. The schools are designed to to try and fulfill this false hope of a responsible and comfortable real life. After which it's assumed that these Christian school graduates and Catholic school graduates will then go and learn what Christian philosophy and theology actually are. And, of course, the time for them to learn that is during their school years. That's when the saints learned those things. That's when the wise men throughout history learned those things. And even if there were late converts like St. Ignatius of Loyola, they went back among the children, even, to learn those things. And when it was their turn to teach, they taught those things to the children. The problem that I see, the cause of this lack of interest in religious vocations and contemplative life in the Catholic priesthood and so on, is that parents and and students don't see that as real life. They see the doctors and the lawyers and the politicians and the soldiers. They see them as the people living successfully in the quote-unquote real world. But like I said, the ancient philosophers denied that this was the real world. And when we look at the wise men and saints from history, they disagreed on what it meant to be successful in the real world. And in the Classical Liberal Arts Academy, what I'm working to do is reintroduce Christian people to that real world, not a real world of constantly changing physical things, not a real world of money and retirement and health care, things which, which never bring us to an end, never bring us to a state of satisfaction or rest or peace of mind, but to reintroduce Christians to the contemplative life, to the life of the soul. Because if our souls are actually ruling our lives as they were designed to just as man was designed to rule over the animals if our souls are in their proper place in our lives we don't need all of the circumstances to be right to be happy our souls are capable of dealing with adversity our souls are capable of overcoming bad circumstances, diseases, pains, poverty, and so on. Our souls can handle these things. But when we neglect the soul and we leave our bodies free to rule, we turn this real world over to to the beasts, as it were. And we've become like beasts. Men are no longer interested in contemplative life or religion. All they can think about is grazing or finding their prey or finding a den to shelter themselves. They've become like animals and not like men. The purpose of the Classical Liberal Arts Academy is to provide an education that's worthy of human beings. As long as parents continue to yield to the cares of this life, to these false ideas about peace and comfort and prosperity and this future promise of Christianity, after all of the circumstances are made right, if parents can learn to abandon that false way of thinking and follow the teaching of Christ, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and to trust that all the other things take care of themselves and are far less significant when the soul is right, they can give their children the freedom to pursue classical Catholic studies to study the classical liberal arts and philosophy and theology rather than worrying irrationally About all of these constantly changing secular education standards and requirements all of which would be exceeded By a classical Catholic education They can give their children the freedom to pursue the good of their soul, their true happiness, and actually obey God in doing so. Act reasonably as parents of human beings. And students should learn that choosing a career and establishing a plan for how they're going to provide for all of their needs through their entire life is not their burden. That's not their responsibility. And their plans, and all their talk, and all of their boasting about the future is rarely ever realized anyway. And it's used to excuse real Christian studies all throughout their school years, but it's never held accountable for never coming true. And students need to learn to stop that talk Stop thinking like that. Stop pretending that it's their responsibility or within their power to give themselves a life of wealth and prosperity or health, even to find a spouse worthy of the Christian sacrament of matrimony. To find a worthy spouse is not within any man or woman's power. The scriptures tell us That a prudent wife comes from the Lord. This isn't something for man to go seek like a coat in the mall. Only God can provide a spouse proper for a Christian married life. And so to hear young people talking about these things only reveals their arrogance and ignorance of the scriptures. What's in our control is obedience. Our will is in our control. And what Christ commands us is that we're to subject our will to God's commandments and seek first as the end of our actions the kingdom of God. Not our own health, not our own wealth, not our own comfort, Not favorable circumstances, not our retirement, but the kingdom of God. That's the end for which we're to live. And if students will accept that challenge, which is the only thing that's actually in their power, they will freely devote themselves to classical Catholic studies and free themselves from that burden of all of the anxious cares of this life. What I used to tell my students was, just focus on being good today. Seek wisdom and be good today. Make every decision a good decision, and everything will take care of itself. Very few Christians will take that advice Very few Christians will listen to the promises that Christ makes for those who do so. And that's why very few Christians are studying the classical Catholic curriculum today. That's why very few Christians are choosing to become monks or nuns or priests today. And that's why things are the way they are, why circumstances are so bad is because Christians are seeking to make all the circumstances good before they live the Christian life.